Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 41. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And happy new war, er, new year, new year, yeah. Yep. 2020 ain't starting off slow, people. And a lot has been happening since our last episode. A lot. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Good morning. I'm pleased to inform you the American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe, and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Well, he's right about one thing. We should be very happy that no American lives were lost in the recent ballistic missile attack on two U.S. military bases in Iraq. About that part, we can be happy. But about the rest of it, we should all be deeply concerned. We should all be focused. And yes, on some levels, we should all be angry. America is on the edge of a massive conflict with Iran. And it didn't have to be this way. But it is. And not even two weeks into 2020, we're off to a hell of a start. Holy shit! Yep. If the 2020s are going to be a roaring 20s, like the 1920s, 2020s definitely coming in like a lion. The entire world is holding their breath, watching the stare down happening between Iran and the U.S. And Australia is on fire, an area as big as West Virginia. The same night of the Iranian missile attack on U.S. forces, a Ukrainian plane crashed in Tehran, killing all 176 people on board. And unless you've been hungover, recovering under a rock since New Year's Day, you know that the U.S. took out Qasem Soleimani on January 3rd, the day after we dropped our last pot from Miami. So the day after we left Miami, things got hot. And yes, as 2020 begins, it feels like the entire world is getting hot. It's like the entire globe is a giant dumpster fire careening into the abyss. We all feel like one of those poor koalas running from the fire in Australia that's engulfing so much of that great country. Things are hot. Things are stressful. But here's my message for right now, for 2020, and for any time things get nuts. Yes. <sighs> breathe, people. When the bullets are flying, when the bombs are dropping, when the rockets are firing, when the tensions are rising, we need cool heads and clear thinking. We need thoughtfulness. We need precision in our military operations and in our words. We need to bring the temperature down. We need less heat and more light. In this episode, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what the president hasn't done basically since he's been elected. I'm going to add light instead of heat. I wanted to talk about the human side 
of the last few weeks with Iran. And the years and decades ahead, we're on the edge of a massive escalation with Iran. But what's Iran really like? How did we get here? And what's it like for the roughly 1 million Iranian Americans that live in this country? Their story, like the story of every type of immigrant and refugee group in every generation, is America's story. And our guest in this episode has lived it. Mazdaq Rossi is one of the most innovative creative forces of our time. If you're in fashion or music, you probably know who he is. If not, you're about to find out. He's a creative genius, an enormously successful entrepreneur, an activist, and a guy Kanye West called a visionary. He's the founder of Milk Studios, the driving force behind Made Fashion Week, and he's a real estate and creative entrepreneur that's influence has spanned our culture for the last two decades and could shape it for the next generation. He's also the founder of Milk Makeup, a rapidly growing global brand that creates products that are paraben-free, vegan, and cruelty-free, and includes a partnership with the Wu-Tang Clan and a line of cannabis-infused mascara, the Kush Mascara. Rossi's also on the board of directors at Burton Snowboards and at the Parsons School of Design. He's a creative force, and he was born in Iran. He left Iran at nine years old, and now, in many ways, he's on top of the world. He's making art, he's making businesses, he's making money, and he's making a difference. But before we get to Rossi, we got to break down the latest. With the NFL playoffs in high gear, another Democratic debate coming soon, and Valentine's Day just over a month away, you're welcome, there are some important issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And that, of course, starts with Iran. That's the sound of angry Iranians. Thousands all across the country mourning the death of Soleimani and angry at America. Now, of course, Iranian media is controlled. You're not really allowed to protest out there without persecution, but people are not happy in Iran and across the Middle East. And again, everyone's saying we're on the brink of war. And we've talked about this, and I've warned you about it, going back to the spring when tensions really began to rise. And I told you that shit was going to get real with Iran. And this week, it got realer than ever before. And as I record this, temperatures have cooled slightly in the last few hours. But as we enter 2020, America remains on the edge of a potentially massive expansion of combat with Iran. Note, I didn't say war with Iran. That's because we've been at war with Iran via our proxies and theirs, for years. In Syria, in Iraq, and in probably in more places than we know. We've been at war with Iran since I was in Iraq in 2003, and we saw dead guys we faced who had come from Iran. You could argue we've been at war with Iran since the Shah was overthrown in 1979. But make no mistake, American forces, allies, and interests have been hitting Iranian forces, allies, and interests, and they've been hitting back for a while now. Now, of course, there's no formal declaration of war. The U.S. hasn't formally declared war on anyone since 1942. That's when we declared war on Hungary, Bulgaria, and Romania when they were aligned with the Germans. So since 1942, there's been no formal declaration of war. 
Not for Korea, not for Vietnam, not for the first Gulf War, not for Afghanistan, not for Iraq. Technically, those were not wars. Those conflicts and many in between are technically extended military engagements. Now, it can be called many things, targeted actions, a systematic campaign, a counterterrorism strategy, but technically, it's not war. But don't tell that to the men and women of multiple generations in America and around the world who've been bombed, shot at, lost limbs, and died. It sure felt like war to them. And it felt like war to the 196 U.S. troops in Iraq that we know of that were killed by Iranian proxy forces. They were mostly killed by EFPs, explosively formed penetrators. These are nasty Iranian-made weapons that were all over the Middle East and employed by Iranian-backed Shia militias in places like Kirkuk and Baghdad's Sadr City. EFPs killed at least 196 U.S. troops and wounded nearly 900 between 2005 and 2011, according to the Defense Department. Now, the U.S. spent billions to stop the threats of these IEDs, but the killings continued. We tried radio jammers and other equipment all over the country. We saturated it. And the number of EFP attacks peaked in 2008. And even now, hundreds of victims of EFPs and their family members of victims are seeking damages from Iran in federal court for their role in deploying weapons. The weapons came from the Quds Force, which in turn supplied weapons and training to groups and insurgents in Iraq, including Khatib Hezbollah. Soleimani led the Quds Force. So EFPs are the main reason why so many of us who served in the Middle East know about the Quds Force and know about Soleimani. So we've been at war with Iran for a while now, but of course not at this level. Things are getting very dicey out there, and President Mayhem has created the worst mayhem possible. Escalation of tensions with Iran that could erupt and overflow into war, fighting, and carnage all across the Middle East and all across the world to include as far as Kenya. Did you know we have troops in Kenya? Did you know a U.S. soldier died there this weekend? It's true. And more on that after my conversation with Rossi. But here we are, watching and waiting, hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. And more units from the U.S. military are headed to the Middle East. Yep. More and more troops are headed over there. They're deploying faster than Marshawn Lynch to a Skittles convention. Lots of them. 100 troops from the 173rd out of Vincenza, Italy. 3,500 paratroopers from the 82nd Airborne. A contingent of Army Rangers from the 75th Ranger Regiment. About 2,200 Marines from the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit that are aboard an amphibious assault ship, the USS Bataan. And about 100 Marines from 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, who are deployed to the embassy in Baghdad. Matt Gallagher is an Army veteran and writer that I've referred to before, and he had a great tweet. He said, somewhere in America right now, there's a grandparent who served in Desert Storm, a parent who served in the second Iraq War, and a teenager considering enlisting to fight in the third Iraq-Iran War. So three generations of Americans have now been engaged in conflict in the Middle East. And veterans like me, National Guard and Reserve Troops nationwide are getting texts from their moms, phone calls from their friends and kids asking, hey, can they call you up? It's a question that's being answered around the nation. 
people are calling into Siri saying, hey, Siri, am I still in the IRR? And even people who aren't in the military are concerned. Recently, the Selective Service website crashed and they posted a tweet. And it said, due to the spread of misinformation, our website is experiencing higher traffic volumes at this time. If you're attempting to register or verify registration, please check back later as we're working to resolve this issue. We appreciate your patience. That's because World War III was trending on Twitter and teenagers from across the country started freaking out, worrying that they might get drafted. Well, they're not going to get drafted, at least not yet. But if they do, there will likely be many, many more angry Americans out there. Especially since the Pentagon continues to keep things tighter than Bill Belichick's upper lip after last week. They continue to withhold key information from the public, which means also from military families. It's a trend we covered in depth back in episode 31 with Newsweek's James Laporta. Go back and check that out if you haven't heard it. But the Pentagon's been slamming the door on information for a while now. And it's a terrible, outrageous, and unprecedented way of freezing out the press and keeping information from the American people at a vital time. And that includes families of our troops. This has been the same DOD posture throughout Trump's presidency. We all deserve the truth, especially now. And despite how screwed up he is, we all have to root for the best President Trump possible. Even if we didn't get it today in his big speech to the nation. As we continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior. In recent months alone, Iran has seized ships in international waters, fired an unprovoked strike on Saudi Arabia, and shot down two U.S. drones. Iran's hostilities substantially increased after the foolish Iran nuclear deal was signed in 2013. And they were given $150 billion, not to mention $1.8 billion in cash. Instead of saying thank you to the United States, they chanted death to America. In fact, they chanted death to America the day the agreement was signed. Then Iran went on a terrorist spree, funded by the money from the deal, and created hell in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, and Iraq. So the world was watching, and Trump walked out and stood in front of a wall of uniforms behind him. Yeah, military troops in uniform, again, being used as political props. Very unusual and very politically aggressive, to say the least, to have generals standing behind him as he gave the speech. I can't remember seeing that kind of staging behind an American president for a speech like this. And if you were wondering... It was General McConville, the Army Chief of Staff, on his left, and General Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, on his right. And the speech was mediocre at best. It was unfocused. It kind of felt all over the place. It was great that he reached out to involve NATO, but that's after he shit on NATO for the last few years. It was good that he stayed calm, period. But there was way too much scorekeeping on how many bad guys the U.S. has killed over the years and way too much highlighting of how many weapons we have. What we needed was de-escalation. What we got was a message and a visual of strength more than de-escalation. So now we all wait. We watch and we stay vigilant, especially our troops and military families. And we hope everybody can be disciplined, thoughtful, and careful, especially Donald Trump. 
So. Breathe in, breathe out. If you're iced up, pull your sleeves out. Push a big truck, pull your keys out. Girls go wild and pull your D's out. Breathe in, breathe out. Let them hoes fight, pull a weave out. If a nigga act up, pull a desert. And as we all take a deep breath, remember that Iran might be doing the same thing. And it's entirely possible that the Iranian leadership will show restraint. They'll try to control the global narrative and pay Trump and the U.S. as the bad guy. And it won't be too hard to do. And it would turn more of the world against America fast. And that is among the most dangerous scenarios possible for us. So as you breathe, remember, it's a crucial time to read, share, tweet, think carefully and objectively. It's not a time to score points, freak out, or share crap that's uninformed and thoughtful. It's a time to be serious, cautious, and focused. Whether you host a show on cable news or you just have 40 Twitter followers, when in doubt, read more from knowledgeable sources and do whatever you can in your sphere of influence to support calm, understanding, peace, and unity. As Americans and as global citizens, we talk about it a lot on this show. We need to stick together as much as we possibly can because we're in for a long haul and need to stay vigilant. And as we all watch what seems like the entire continent of Australia burn, and the world holds their breath watching to see what happens with Iran, the Iowa caucus is just one month away. And this time next year, we'll know who our president is for the next four years. But the 2020 race rolls on, and it might not officially be war with Iran or Iraq, but it's war on the campaign trail. Yep. It's open war on that campaign trail, and winter is here. Tom Brady might be done, or he might not, but another candidate is done. And the rest are getting ready for the next major debate in Iowa next week. So who's in, who's out, who's up, who's down, who's surging in Iowa like the Tennessee Titans, and who's knocked out in the last round like the Eagles? Here's what you need to know about the latest on the 2020 race. Number one, there's another debate coming next week. Yippee! Yep, yippee, there's another one coming. It's got CNN's Wolf Blitzer and Abby Phillip moderating, along with Brian Fanstyle of the Des Moines Register. Fanstyle is like one of the hardest names I've tried to pronounce all year. At the Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. It'll be the final debate before the Iowa caucuses on February 3rd, just a little under a month from now. You probably haven't seen this, but there's a chance the debate could conflict with the impeachment trial in the Senate. And the chairman of the DNC, Tom Perez, said that the party would actually reschedule the primary debate in Iowa if the televised event conflicts with Trump's impeachment hearing in the Senate. He said our senators can walk and chew gum at the same time. So they might actually move the debate. But right now, it looks like all systems are go. And when those systems go, seven candidates will be on that stage for the next primary debate. And here's the magnificent seven. Vice President Joe Biden. Mayor Pete Buttigieg from South Bend, Indiana. If you haven't seen our episode with him, go back and check out that extended conversation. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, who's continuing to hang around. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who's had a very strong couple of fundraising weeks. Businessman Tom Steyer, who continues to annoy the shit out of most of America. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's been fading a bit over the last couple of weeks. And businessman Andrew Yang, everybody's favorite candidate that very few people will vote for. But all seven of those made the cutoff. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker and Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard both say they hit the fundraising threshold, but came up short when it came to the polls to make the stage. 
Gabbard was one poll away from qualifying, but she said she wasn't going to attend the debate even if she did qualify. That's Gabbard being Gabbard. She's inexplicable at best. And if you haven't heard that episode, definitely go back and check it out. I had an extended conversation with Tulsi Gabbard in episode 30, and it's probably the most candid conversation you'll hear with her. Check that out. Former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who entered the race after last decade, had two of the necessary four qualifying polls, but he did not hit the fundraising threshold, in part because he's not raising money. But he did get a major endorsement that was a bit surprising. I'm Judge Judy Scheindler. I like to say you can judge someone's character by what they've done. Mike Bloomberg has done amazing things and will be a truly great president. No one comes close to Mike Bloomberg's executive achievement, government experience, and impactful philanthropy. His steady leadership will unite our country and bring us through these very challenging times. Yep, that's Judge Judy, who I think was actually extremely effective. And I wouldn't underestimate Judge Judy. I think she could be extremely fun to watch in attacks on Trump over the course of 2020, and she might actually chip away at his base. So stay tuned for that. But Bloomberg's got money, more than anyone else in the race. And now we know by how much. The other item you need to know is that fourth quarter fundraising numbers came out. And here's how it looked. Sanders was on top with $34.5 million. Buttigieg next at almost $25 million. Then Biden at $22.7 Warren next around 17 million, Yang right behind her at 16.5, Gabbard way down at 3 million, and Trump at 46 million. Now, that 46 million is maybe the most impressive and important. The Democrats continue to eat their own and divide their resources, and Trump just keeps stocking the shelves at more ammo. Now, there should also be an asterisk for Bloomberg, and the value of his stockpile I do not think can be dismissed. But that's what's looking on the money side. And the money matters, and it definitely mattered for one candidate who's dropped out. Yes, folks, another candidate for president is out, Julian Castro. Castro was the only Latino candidate in the race, and he brought some solid energy, youth, and focused his campaign on a few issues that I think were uniquely powerful. Immigration, poverty, police brutality. Often, he was the only guy talking about those things. And his campaign noted he was the first candidate to travel to Puerto Rico as part of his campaign and the first to publicly support opening an impeachment inquiry against President Trump. Maybe the most memorable moment of his campaign was when he came after Joe Biden during the debate in September. Remember that heated exchange when Castro repeatedly suggested that Biden had forgotten what he just said? You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? you said just two minutes ago remember that one i think it was a dumb move and i think it was a revealing one and his campaign went downhill pretty much after that but in the end castro was a positive force in the campaign and especially inspiring as a role model and like all the candidates that drop out he's not going away he'll be back maybe to run again down the road or to serve in the cabinet and definitely to jockey for vp or some other slot he's not a guy to wait around evidenced by the fact that he quickly endorsed Elizabeth Warren. So the herd is thinning people, the tribes are uniting, and maybe our John or Jane Snow is finally emerging. And with the heat continuing to rise in the Middle East and Iran, 
We're all about to find out which of the presidential candidates really has any clue about the Middle East. This is going to continue to move fast, and it probably won't die down this time. Amateurs will be revealed. And unfortunately, that includes our current commander-in-chief. But welcome to 2020, folks. The race is on. Yes, the heat is rising, the fire is increasing, and the clash of the candidates is escalating. But thankfully, so are the NFL playoffs. How awesome is that song, right? It might be the single best thing about Fox. Lately, it's the only good thing about Fox. But the playoffs were a damn good escape last weekend when we needed it most. And hopefully we'll be again this weekend. If you missed it, it was a fantastic four games. Two of them went into overtime. The Bills, after an incredible season, lost to the Texans 19-22 in overtime. The Titans upset the Patriots 20-13. The Vikings, in a fantastic game down in New Orleans, beat the Saints in overtime 26-20. And the Seahawks beat the Eagles 17-9 in Philly, making me particularly happy. Now. It was a fun weekend, and I love Wild Card Weekend. Haters can hate, but that was why we love the NFL. But even on a weekend like that, there was something that made me angry, made others angry, and I think should make everyone angry. The NFL overtime system. It sucks. It was our latest painful reminder that the NFL overtime format is terrible. Two of the games went in overtime, and it's a totally unfair format. It's often decided by the coin toss, and both teams don't get a fair shot. The college format is much more fun and much more fair. And so I think that's good reason to make everybody an angry American. Also making me angry and related to football, political commercials during my football. Now, look, I'm the guy who often says the two are interconnected, and I get that. You can't separate sports and politics, but I kind of like a break, especially from Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer ran a bunch of ads this weekend. Dude, get out of my football game. I don't even want to see you on the debate stage. I definitely don't want to see your damn commercials during wildcard weekend or throughout the playoffs. And it looks like it's going to get worse. Bloomberg is buying a $10 million Super Bowl ad. And in a different kind of escalation of tension, Trump is also buying a $10 million ad. So it looks like the war of words and the war of tension is going to continue all the way through the Super Bowl. Some other takeaways from an incredible playoff weekend. Tony Romo is amazing. If you haven't heard him call a game, he's fantastic. And I say that as a Giants fan who despises the Cowboys. If you contrast him with Troy Aikman, Troy Aikman merely breaks down what's already happened. And he talks mostly tactics. Romo predicts what will happen. And he talks strategy. That's the biggest difference. Other big news, the Pats are out. Surprisingly. And all dynasties come to an end. As much as I've rooted against them, I will always respect the Patriots and Belichick and Brady, especially they're masters of strategy, discipline, and execution. We may never see anything like this run again. And we'll also probably never see Eli Manning on the field. again. That's what it sounded like for Eli to jog off the field last weekend. And that's likely how it ends for Eli Manning after 16 seasons and two Super Bowls. And I just want to say, I think there's infinite respect for him from me and countless others for the fact that he always did it the right way. He was a model citizen, teammate, and community leader 
that will always be bigger than football. And he beat the Patriots twice. And overall, it was the best product on the field for the world to see from the NFL in a long time. And interestingly, we weren't talking about any national anthem protests this time, for what it's worth. So I didn't do too well on my predictions. But in the end, I was pretty happy. The Eagles lost. The Pats lost. The Cowboys had been already knocked out. So for me, this was as good of a weekend a Giants fan can hope for without our team actually playing. And Donald Trump stayed away from our football. Awesome week of games. With another awesome weekend of games coming up. It starts off on Saturday with the Vikings traveling to play the 49ers who've been looking fantastic. And then Saturday night, it's the Titans that are on a roll against the Ravens who've been looking absolutely fantastic at home. And then on Sunday, the Texans travel to Kansas City, and we find out finally what Kansas City's really made of. And of course, we get to watch Patrick Mahomes against J.J. Watt, which is going to be a fantastic matchup. And then finishing the weekend, the Seahawks travel to Lambeau Field to play the Packers. Russell Wilson and Marshawn Lynch against Aaron Rodgers at home. So the weekend of football was a good distraction. But our modern reality in America, at least for guys like me, is watching playoff football while checking on the escalations of our forever war between plays and at halftime. Be toggling back and forth between the NFL and Iran and the Golden Globes. So that was the other big thing distracting us from the world being on fire this weekend, the Golden Globes. Welcome to the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills, California, where tonight the stars of television and motion pictures are gathering for one of Hollywood's biggest events. The Golden Globes had a lot of politics this year. And wins for Succession, which I love. If you haven't seen that, definitely check it out. And if you haven't already, run out and go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is exceptional if you need another distraction. It's my third favorite Tarantino movie of all time, after Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, of course. And Brad Pitt, also exceptional. And so is this message that I think came at a really important time. Hey, if you see a chance to be kind to someone tomorrow, take it. I think we need it. We need a message like that. And we also might need the new film 1917, which looks fantastic, and I'm going to try to check out this weekend. As the world holds their breath to see what happens with Iran, and many continue to beat the drums of war, maybe 1917, a movie about the carnage of World War I, is something we all need to see, and a film that we all hope could do well right now. The NFL playoffs, and especially the Golden Globes, underscore why American culture is so vital, and why art is so vital, especially in times of conflict. American sports, American art, American culture, especially in our movies, our music, our fashion, and our brands, can be more powerful than any ballistic missile, and maybe more effective. And that's the power represented by our guests this week. Think about it. What's reaching more young people in the Middle East right now? The speech from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, or the new Kanye album? A Donald Trump press conference, or an awesome new pair of Nike sneakers? What's going to win more people over to America's side across the Middle East? Our sanctions or our movies? What's going to make young people across the Middle East want to come to America? Hang with Americans. Be with America. Trump's hotels or some killer parties that involve fashion and music and creativity? That's the power of our guest in this episode. Every time we've had somebody on this show, it's someone that shaped America's past, is impacting America's present, and is driving America's future. And for an entire new generation, Mazdak Rossi is doing that. He's representing America to the world in the best of ways. And he's a true American success story, an immigrant success story, one of the best you'll ever hear. 
and one that couldn't possibly be more timely. Everyone calls him Rossi. He was born in Tehran in 1970, and you'll hear what happened after that. It's amazing. But he went from the most precarious days of revolution under the Shah to working at the Gap with a few hundred bucks to his name, to building a revolutionary fashion, culture, and media brand, to selling a building to Google, to hanging out with presidential candidates, to being called a visionary by Kanye West. Rossi's a true Renaissance man. He's got heart, he's got grit, he's got vision, and he's super cool. He's the father of two young twin girls, and he's the husband to Zana Rossi, the powerhouse beauty and entertainment journalist and businesswoman. She's the fashion editor-at-large for Marie Claire, She's the E! News fashion correspondent. She's on the Today Show, and she consults for American retail chains like Target and a fashion stylist for brands like Adidas and Victoria's Secret. You may know her from the E! News coverage of glamorous events like the Met Gala, the Golden Globes, the People's Choice Award, the Emmys, and a few weeks, the Oscars. At his core, Rossi's an adventurer. He's a seeker, and he's also a curator and a host. If America was the coolest party on the planet... He'd be the host that meets you at the door, humbly shows you around, introduces you to his cool friends, gets you laughing, and hands you a shot. A really good one. First, he was the mayor of Milk Studios, the cultural hive he runs in the meatpacking district, where the worlds of art, fashion, music, and nightlife collide. It's a place where Patti Smith, Kokoroka, Alexander Wang, and the Wu-Tang Clan might be spotted waiting for the same elevator on a given night. That's why people have called him the mayor of the meatpacking district, an area of New York City that became a global mecca over the last few decades for culture, fashion, and cool. And Rossi's also intersected with a number of guests we've had on this show in the past, like Sarah Jessica Parker, who joined us back in episode five. She said, for Rossi, the word no doesn't exist. It's thrilling to sit in a room and brainstorm with him. He's enormously charming and really attractive. So he's been called attractive by Sarah Jessica Parker. He's also worked with Scott Campbell, the brilliant tattoo artist and visionary from episode 25, and has done some awesome projects with him. So from mayor of Milk to mayor of the Meatpacking District, I'll ask him if he'd like to be mayor of all of New York, or maybe more. Rossi is a master of American culture. He was thrust into it when he landed as a young boy in Chicago in the 1980s. He cut his teeth on it in the 90s, planning and disrupting it in the 2000s, exploding in the 2010s, and dominating and evangelizing in the 2020s. He's a global ambassador for his company and his movement called Milk, but also for America, for the American dream, and for the future. And the future of the American family looks like Rossi's. Diverse, interested, interesting, caring, tenacious, and deeply patriotic. Rossi loves his country like someone who dreamed in his early days of being a part of it. Now, he's shaping its future. And despite the dark events happening all around us, and despite the tensions with his birth country of Iran, and despite the pain of the recent year and the recent decades, Rossi's optimistic. And he appreciates every single thing he has, because he's earned it, he's scraped for it, he's fought for it, and he appreciates it. And at the end of this conversation, you'll understand why, and you'll probably be a fan for life. Rossi's a Chicago area guy, and so is Kanye West, who had this to say about his friend. All I'm going to say is, I fucking love this guy, and he sets an example to us as a humanitarian, as a visionary, and as an innovator. Rossi. (laughs) 
Kanye's right. That's not something you're going to hear me say often, especially in the last few years, but it's true. Kanye's right. Rossi is a humanitarian. He's a visionary. He's an innovator. And he's a great American success story. Welcome to the good life. Creativity can change the world. We can all use some more creativity right now. Creativity to face our problems. Creativity to shape our future. Creativity to keep us cool. Especially when the world's getting hot. So I asked Rossi what song should be his theme song. And he said this one. America's having some tough moments. But this is still the place where dreams happen. It's still the place where a refugee can go from 500 bucks in his pocket to building a global movement. Rossi's enjoying life because life is good. And life in America, despite all its faults, is still good. It's not perfect, but it's better than most. And I hope this episode is too. And we have a conversation for you that, as always, brings the four eyes that define this show. Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. Yeah, times are tough out there. Rockets are falling, acres are burning, but we're still alive. And there's still hope for a brighter day. And there's always hope for a better life. You got to remember that, especially when times are tough. And you got to find a way to see the light, to see the hope, to appreciate those around you and celebrate what you have, even if it's only the fact that you're alive. Once I was in Israel and I was out late, very late in a nightclub with some American veterans and some Israeli veterans. And a friend of mine named Ellie was hosting us. And if you've ever been in the Middle East, whether it's Israel or Iraq, you know that there's a unique happiness in the way people celebrate, in the way they party. So in that club, late night, early morning, actually, in Israel, I said to my friend, damn, you guys know how to have a good time. And he said to me, well, if you thought you might die every day, you'd party your ass off too. And it's not a bad attitude to have or a bad perspective to have, to appreciate every song, to appreciate every day alive, to appreciate what we have, and to believe things will get better. That's the only way they do. Rossi believes in others. He believes in himself, and he believes in America. He believes our future can be a bright one, and I believe him. And after this conversation, I think you will too. So everybody take a big, deep breath. These can be the roaring 20s. We can make it that way. We can be powerful. And we can all make it happen. And like Rossi shows, and like Kanye says, you're all welcome. Welcome to The Good Life. Welcome to Angry Americans, Episode 41. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, happy new year, happy new war. Uh, I come to you live with a fantastic, inspiring, exceptionally timely guest. The great and powerful Mazdaq Rossi is here. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Classic Car Club. Thank you for having me. Thank well, you. Welcome to 2020. I know. I'm psyched about it. Are you? Yeah. Tell us why. I'm super optimistic. Tell us why. Um, well, I read this other thing. I read the other day, you know, about 
you look at the last millennia, I mean, the last hundred years, sorry, and you look at it and you go, okay, we just entered the 20s. So what was it a hundred years ago? It was the 1920s. It was the roaring 20s. It was an incredible time for achievement and progress and architecture. And um, it was a really monumental time. And I think, I'm thinking the same. I'm kind of, I'm attaching it to the 20s. I'm, I'm kind of excited. That's a good way to start. Because <laughs> I don't think most people are feeling excited right now. The first know, couple of weeks of the I year, know. you know, wars are potentially being escalated. Planes are falling from the sky. I people know. are under stress. But I'm, I'm so happy to sit with you for a number of different reasons. In part, because I think you were the first guest on this show that has ever had the formal endorsement of Kanye to the point where <laughs> Kanye has called you a visionary. You got some interesting friends, man, that I'm excited to get into, but he called you a visionary, and I, and I really think that you are, and we're going to need visionaries in times like this. We've known each other a long time. Before we get into that, tell everybody what we're drinking today, because I ask everybody, what do you want to drink? What's your drink of choice? And you, you chose two things, uh, is the message we got, and I figured, <laughs> shit, after this week, we might need both. So what are we drinking? Well, what happened was, um, I think that... I kind of everybody knows my drink is the 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 1942 Don Julio cuz when I was growing up you know in, in the Midwest we were so broke we just when we were like in college you know you used to drink the worst tequila in the world and you would you'd have these like adverse effects the next day and you'd you know you have to pump your stomach and so I, so later in life when you finally can you know afford a nice drink you you learn about like the good stuff, which is like 1942 Don Julio. So the minute I had my first sip, which was probably like about eight years ago, I was like, this is it. I can truly say I'm a tequila lover. And so, you know, we're lucky enough to drink this incredible drink. We got, I think you got my wife hooked on that too. Yeah. My, wife, my wife's always been a tequila fan, but I think after she started working <laughs> with you, she came back asking for the good stuff. Yeah. And I get a lot of people hooked on Don Julio, nineteen. You get a lot of people hooked on a lot of things. You get a lot of people hooked on music, on makeup, on art. Uh, and we also have kind of a more traditional choice, Johnny Walker Black, right? That was in case we don't have the Julio 42, which we do have. You also said Johnny Walker Black. So again, I think after the last couple of days, we might need both. Yeah, I know. It, it, it's Drinking is good. What do, you, what do you think about Johnny Walker Black? I think that's always been my go-to back in the day. And so when, when you guys first asked, what's funny is, is that I replied and I I was try I didn't want to be rude and ask for 1942 Don Julio. And so I asked for Johnny Walker Black. And then my assistant was like, no, he only drinks 19. So I went to her and I said, I hope you didn't tell them. <laughs> I was like, you know, that's an expensive bottle. So when I showed up, I saw boats. I felt even no, double no, no, worse. No, 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 no. Do not feel it. It's a time for 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 good reflection and good drinks. And it's interesting too because I was talking to somebody. We talk about whiskey on the show. We talk about a lot of things on the show. But before single malts became so available around the world. I feel like Johnny Walker Black used to be like the stuff, right? If you wanted yeah. to give somebody a really good gift, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, before all the single malts were all over the world, and especially internationally. Like when I was in the Middle yeah. East, a bottle of Johnny Walker Black yeah. was, 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 was unique, right? It was yeah. kind of the shit at the time. Now we have all these multitude of options, but that used to be one of our limited best options. Yeah, and it, it's kind of like you start having the regular Johnny Walker 
And then at some point you, you migrate, you kind of move up to the black. And then when you can really do it, you go to the blue and then you realize you don't need to be in the blue. The black is just as good. I think that's true. Because the blue is a bit too creamy. Hmm. It's a bit too creamy. So you, you kind of come back down and then you find your spot. Like black is good. You don't need to move up. See, this is this is why I'm so excited. That you are a connoisseur of many things. Now, for folks, folks won't know this, but we met, I don't know, man, may, over a decade ago. Yeah. Right? So you, my, my wife, um, worked closely with you and your team when you guys were launching and building and growing this amazing brand and movement of milk that's become so many things. But I kind of first met you because you guys were doing these sick fashion events. You guys were launching like the coolest fashion events on the planet. And I was basically like extra security. I'd come from talking about the Iraq war and my wife would be doing a fashion event. And it was like the ultimate escape for me. And I had never been exposed to the world of fashion. And it was fucking awesome. It was some of the best creative energy and music and, uh, and art that I had ever seen. And I think for the haters from the outside, they're like, Oh, you know, fashion shows are this, you guys turned it upside down. So, yeah, seeing that, witnessing that was how I became friends with you and your amazing wife, Zana, and your whole crew. But it's been incredibly inspiring to see your growth and the dynamism and all the projects you're you're into. But I want to start, part of why I want to talk to you is because of where you come from, where you came from. And the news that's so relevant right now, I can't think of of anyone that's better to talk to in some ways because you you were born in Iran and now you're here. And you're this incredible American success story. You, you are you are living yeah. the American dream, man. And, and I think with all the news happening in the world, I wanted to bring it down to a personal level. Yeah. I wanted to talk about people and I wanted people to hear from a person yeah. who could kind of shape up these times and all that's going on in the world. And, and that's you, man. So for folks who don't know your story, yeah. can you take us back mm. to how did the Rossi story start? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's exactly what you, it is an American story, you know, and, and I think that, uh, you know, I was born in Iran in 1970, and my brother is a year older than me. And, um, you know, we were born into a really great family. My my father uh, came to America when he was younger and, and went to Cornell. He went to the University of Texas, and um, he kept going back to Iran and moving up and helping build. He was in education, and so he worked his way all the way up. Uh, into being a chancellor at a university. He built a few universities through Iran. Um, And so we moved around uh, the country in different cities while he was building these universities and really bringing Western education in. And he was working for the king at the time. There was the Shah of Iran. And, um, you know, it was a very prosperous time in Iran. And um, when you went around the world, even as a kid, and you said, oh, I'm from, you know, we're from Iran, People, it was very prestigious. It was really incredible. And I remember as a kid. And, um, you know, we grew up also in England and we were in Switzerland a lot. So we traveled a lot. And uh, my father always wanted me and my brother to have Western education as well as uh, learning about where we come from. But it was really about thinking about the world. And um, he worked his way all the way up in the education division, almost up to uh, becoming a minister of education. And, um, you know, in 1979, 78, there was turmoil. And, you know, 79, it all ended. I mean, there was a revolution. 
and the Islamic Revolution happened, and um, we, me, my mom, and my brother were actually in England. We were in London at at, at a place that we our second home, and my dad was in Iran, and and I, I'll always remember the night he called and he said, you know, it's getting really bad here, and uh, and then the next day he was in in England, like he showed up, and, and I'll never forget the day, like I was I was about nine years old and my brother was 10 and and he just looked at my mom and he said it's over like we can't go back and and my mom's like what do you mean it's over like my, all our relatives are there our homes our family and we were like just no it's not safe and it was like the french revolution i mean they burned everything to the ground it was a major major change and so my mom was like that's not right so she grabbed me and my brother and uh, all the phone lines were cut, and my dad basically said, don't go. But she was like, what do you mean? Not? Let me imagine, like, someone tells you tonight, you're never going home. Right. You know? And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. So she grabbed us. She went back to Iran. And our last name, Rossi, which is actually my last name, you know, people knew of my dad. He was pretty high up in the government and working uh, in education. And, and so we, me and my brother and my mom landed in Tehran right after the revolution. Like she's just like thinking she's coming home. There's something temporarily. And the minute we landed, we realized, oh my God. My mom realized like this place has completely changed. It, it was a major revolution. They burned so many things down. We went to our home. Somebody was already living in it. So we acted like we went to the wrong address, turned around and went and stayed with my uncles. And then we spent the next sort of year trying to figure out how to get out. And, um, you know, my father at the time left England and came to America. He was very good friends with uh, a few chancellors and university presidents that were, that he had met over the years. And, um, and he came to Champaign, Illinois, University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And he kind of came there with, you know, and we had no money, like everything was gone. And, um, he made his way to America with, through political asylum, and we're stuck in Iran. And um, this is at the height of the craziness. Like, So we're kind of camped out of my uncle's house, and my mom decides that she's going to just, we had some storage with some rugs. She sold everything on the black market, sold all her jewelry, and um, we went straight to the U.S. Embassy to try to get out. And my father had helped and got us a, political asylum papers to the U.S. Embassy in Iran and basically through cryptic messages on the phone was like, go to the U.S. Embassy. So we go there and the line is like six months long. So we waited in line, me, my mom, my brother. We didn't go to school. Um, We waited in line and, uh, you know, we would move up 10 feet at a time every day. And and after many, many, many months... um, I remember the day we got to the gates and it was just covered in black fabric because they the, the U.S. Embassy put black fabric up because it was like this. I remember looking through it and inside seeing the Marines and it was like this heaven, this little block in the middle of craziness that was like our freedom, hopefully. You know, we didn't know. So we work our way in and I remember coming into the vestibule and uh, it was like Argo, the movie, literally. Yeah. And um, 
we finally go in and they this young lady had to literally in the embassy go find our papers and she basically grabbed my mom she said you need to go straight to the airport if anybody opens this envelope and the seal is broken you won't get into the united states and we went home we packed we went straight to the airport and the airport in tehran was exactly like our go it was mayhem and somehow through all the craziness kind of used it to our advantage to move in and you know five six hours later we're sitting in air france and the plane is just like silent and you know the these these new you know revolutionary people coming on board pulling people out and it's like it was nuts and then we finally started getting taxiing finally started getting on the runway and all of the i remember looking at the air france um flight attendants they had veils on, they had like that to wear chadors and you know just they were so everyone was like why are we still flying to this place you know it's like and the plane started taking off and about you know as soon as it was about 15 feet off the ground the plane erupted everyone was crying women were ripping their veils and and then we landed at Charles de Gaulle they took the whole airplane because it was all Iranians literally we were in in a in another area and then we got on a flight came to uh landed at O'Hare you know hours tens of hours later and then they took the entire Iranian group put him in a room and then we walked into a room um and then my dad came in on the other side and then we got we got our new you know lease on life they were like you know welcome to america they were like you know and my mom's like so where where are we going he's like it's this little town called champagne it's really <laughs> lovely and we started with nothing and my mom you know she borrowed uh 3000 from my cousin her cousin in montreal who'd already got out and um we started a whole new life i was 9 my brother was 10 and you know and it was scary it was like this new place and we had nothing we moved into this little one bedroom apartment that you know the university gave my dad and hired him but it was like the most incredible thing because we felt safe mm. like my parents were safe and it was like america that grew up in iran like looking at like the 6 million dollar man steve austin like america was everything to any kid growing up in america like first on the moon you know jfk So you you were like, you know, within a month we were on basketball team, the baseball team, the football team, you know, and we were American. And you know, and it, and that is what is so incredible about this country. This is what we can never lose. And why, you know, I feel like it's important for me to tell that story. You know, today there are half a million Iranian Americans. But what's funny is growing up, I never called We ne- we don't call ourselves Iranian Americans. We're American. I never called mm-hmm. myself. It's not like Italian Americans. Right. Right. You know, it is. We're Americans. You know, you every once in a while you'll throw the thing Persian. You know, uh-huh. throws everybody off. We can get into that. Uh-huh. You know? But that's that's what it is. This country assimilates refugees and immigrants. And for me, it's never been about how many should we. I never wanted to get into the. the the argument of how many we should let in even though this country is completely built on immigration right we forget about um but even if one family like ours is allowed in the fact that they can assimilate 
they can become Americans so quickly is the power of this country. This is what Europe doesn't have. You have third, fourth, fifth generation people that are born in Europe, in France and Britain, that never feel French, that never feel English. And this country never had that, and it never does. My job is to make sure that never happens, right? Mm -hmm. All of us who come from different places. Um, so that's the long version, no, <laughs> but it's, that's, that's the beginnings of where we came from. And Thank you. That is a, a beautiful and important story. And anyone listening now understands why I wanted you to sit with us now in this moment uh, with everything else happening in the world. But also your, your story is timeless, you know, because you, you get to the States um, you end up on the basketball team and the football team and living this like Ferris Bueller life outside of Chicago, yeah. right? <laughs> and um, and by the way, yeah. like when we were growing up in the Midwest, Chicago, that was the center of the universe. Yeah, I mean, we had John Hughes. Like, you're right. This is like like you know yeah. eighty five to. 84 to 88. When you had I Michael Jordan and the Bulls. We had Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Yeah, you had the we Bears. Had, we had the 85 Bears, yeah. right? Yeah. We had house music, B96. This is Chicago was like creating this stuff. We had the best rock bands like Smashing Pumpkins. All these guys were coming. We'd go to our friends' garages and watch these guys perform. And then you had like 16 Candles, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You had Breakfast Club. There wasn't a kid in Chicago that was thinking about New York or LA or why am I here? We were in the greatest city in the world coming up. And even though we were in Champaign, which was like a big suburb of it, right. it was still, it was still Chicago. You know, I love Chicago and, and I love, <laughs> I love your Chicago story. I love Chicago in the summer. I think it's such a special place. Um, and your Chicago story is is almost as amazing as your American story, which is as amazing as your New York story, right? Yeah. So you go, you grow up in Chicago and take us through how you eventually end up in New York. So the New York story, you know, which is all the, these wonderful American story, right? It's all about America. And, you know, I, I went to university in Champaign. I went to community college, Parkland College. So I couldn't get into University of Illinois where <laughs> growing up, but it was all right. You know, you're still on campus kind of. Yeah. And then I don't know. I came home one day. I was kind of a smart ass and I came home and bo imagine both my parents are professors. My brother, he's a mechanical engineer. He's a, he's an amazing, he's, you know, he's a, he's a, he went, he got so many degrees. He can't even count. And I, I'm the smart ass and I'm always like, all I cared about was like creative, creative, creative. So I came home one day and I looked at my parents and I said, I have, a, I have great news. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, you have great news? Because your, your grades aren't that great. I'm like, no, but I have great news. I'm done with school. And school is done with me. <laughs> so, so I drop out. Right. My dad was so mad. Like, I don't think he talked to me for like a year. I don't know. Somehow my mom feels bad. She lends me 500 bucks. And on a credit card. And I, mo I just moved to New York. And this is where, you know, the legend of, of Rossi grows. This and I, I got to ask you for a second. Yeah. Everyone calls you Rossi. Yeah, that's my like, last name. Right. But do they call your brother Rossi too? Does it get confusing? Or is this like- they, My dad it was, because, you know, he was PhD. He was like, a, yeah. he was a doctor. So it was always Dr. Rossi. Yeah. And then 
you know, my brother kind of, you know, especially on the football team, is like Rossi. It was like Rossi. Sounds good. It used to be like Rossi. And so when you did call my house and you were like, is Rossi there? My mom would be like, which one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but, um, and and I think my first name, Mazdak, was like really difficult in right. central Illinois. So I had like many variations of it. So <laughs> my friends used to call me Mazda, like the car company. Right? I mean, so when I first came to New York, I made this thing. It was like, it's Rossi. And um, was this your entrance into branding? I mean, yeah, you, were, you were kind I mean, of this, without, this entire examination. You is know, it, is looking it? back now, it was, you know, it was the stage name, I guess. I was like, okay, that's it. But I came here with nothing and I, I came to New York and I, I just knew one dude, this guy, Eitan, he was from Israel. And he, um, I met him on a beach in Florida and we started talking. And so I just called him. I said, I'm landing at LaGuardia. Um, and he picked me up in a white limo. And he, and I tried, I, I came, I was like, oh my God, a limo. And he's like, no, dude, sit in the front. I'm the limo driver. He was a limo driver. So, so, so like, he's like, no, you don't get to sit in the back. Like I drive limos for a living. So I lived on Aton's couch in Avenue X in Coney Island. I was like, is this New York? Cause it was like so far, but it was the best. And he looked at me and he was Israeli and he said, listen, um, you you can sleep on my couch, but you just, you got to get a job. You got to work. Like, you know, and I was like, done. I remember I took an NNR train, got out on Broadway and 8th, and I walked into a gap and I filled out an application. I lied that I do windows. <laughs> and I got a job doing windows at the gap. And that was my first job in New York City. Meaning setting up the windows yeah, or like, washing you know, the windows? You, you tuck in, no, you tuck in the sleeve into the mannequin. Yeah. And, all of that just made it up. Entrance into into fashion. Now. Into, yeah, that was my right? first interest. And then and then let uh, me ask. Go go yeah. back to Champaign, Illinois, because before we get into New York, where you start riding subways, I got to ask you one of the questions we ask of every guest. Mazda Rossi, what was your first car? It was an Audi five thousand S. I bought. It wasn't new. It was like super old. I bought from my best friend Sergio for. 2000 bucks. I paid him cash. And I think my Alpine speaker, my Alpine system was more expensive than the, the car. But, you know, I've always worked. Even when we were kids, me and my brother, we had paper routes. We worked at the Olive Garden. We worked Giordano's Pizza, Deep Dish. I mean, I've always worked because we had no money. Right. You know, so we had to make our own. And, but always felt comfortable. Like my parents always made us feel comfortable because if you grew up in a Persian family, there's one thing you always have is food. Right. Lots of Persian food, rice, tadik. So all my friends would come over to our house. Kids that were like a lot wealthier than us would come over to our house to eat, you know? And that's the one thing like in in the in, in Iran and, and also Persian families. And it's like your parents, no matter what they have or they don't have, you know, you have this amazing family unit. And that, you know, kind of keeps you really And the tadik is like the, the comfort food, right? Yeah, tadig I mean, is like, like the the burnt rice at yeah, the bottom. Yeah, the good stuff. And if you're a good kid and you had good grades, which I, you get the tadig. So you got to fight for it. In a household, you're fighting for the tadig. What color was the car? It was silver. Of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you you live this life where you've got all these characters like the dude in the limo and your friend Sergio and you know the, the this cast of characters that are the, it, it's a movie. I hope it will be a movie. I hope you write a book about your life and maybe this is the first step toward that because it's this incredible journey uh, of of starting in Iran, ending up in Chicago, coming to New York, and then grinding, right? Like grinding. hustling. Yeah. And grinding, yeah. you're working at the Gap. You got a couple hundred bucks in your pocket. You're living all the way out in in Coney Island, and yeah. was the first you know business entrance uh, of of note. The real estate move, or no? The, it was about- it was really like I I would I had like five jobs because you know yeah. you were you know you you're had a portfolio kind of guy yeah right like even now <laughs> you know milk is this is this wonderful yeah, uh, ecosystem of different businesses yeah. and brands that yeah. are all spectacular and all very different yeah. right yeah i mean there was this idea like and i guess a lot of kids who make this trip to new york are like there's no going home like you got to make it and especially in in an iranian persian like you're either a doctor a lawyer everyone's educated so right. like you're, you know, the minute I dropped out, you're like, you have to lose a word on your forehead. And so you have to prove yourself. And and when I got here, it was, I was so broke. I remember there was like three of our friends, there was like four of us, you know, we're all like, and I remember, you know, mustard sandwiches for a week. I remember buying a loaf of bread and a bottle of mustard and eating that for a week because I had no money. Like I couldn't afford. And then all of a sudden, like your friend, we we'll get his paycheck and then we'll all have falafel, right? It was like, <laughs> and then like you'd get your paycheck and then you'd take all your friends for like hummus, right? And so, so you know, but the people, actually what's funny is like the the people that I started to meet through my friend Eitan was, was a lot of the Israeli real estate guys. So I started working, showing apartments in New York. I walked the Upper East Side. I went through like 10 pairs of shoes and he would, uh, Ronan would put, you know, I would work for him and he would put, a, a, an ad in the New York Times and I would show the apartment. I would make 20% of the fee. And then, so I started that by, within two years, I had this company. It wasn't even a company. I'd like, we had eight guys and I, we had a little office. And then I ended up renting an, a penthouse to this kind of like really wealthy Israeli guy named Moshe Mana, who to this day is my partner. And Moshe had Moshe's moving and he was like a New York centric guy. Everybody knew Moshe's moving. And he got this insane apartment. At the time, it was like six grand a month. That would be like a two-bedroom now. Right. Not even. Right. But I rented him this apartment. And he looked at me one day and he goes, you know, he's like, so um, I'm doing a birthday party. And I was like, oh. And he invited me and I got to meet him. We kind of became a little bit friends. And then his partner, Erez uh, Sternlicht, who was like running the company, all of his companies. And he said to me, Hey, uh, what are you doing? I was like, well, I work as a bartender at night. I, I work at the Gap during the day. I, I intern at this casting company. I mean, I had so many jobs just to pay the bill and try to figure out. And he said, you know, we bought a building in the meatpacking. And I said, you guys did? He goes, yeah, we bought a building in the meatpacking. And I was like, and I had a friend, this guy named Carl, who who was a photographer. I didn't know anything about it. And I was like, I was like, oh, and I looked at him and said, oh, maybe... He goes, do you want to come up with an idea or something? Maybe we can do there. And that's kind of the first, that was nine, that was 1995. So at the time, the meatpacking district was still undeveloped. There's no uh, High Line. There's no Standard Hotel. There's no, no West Side the Highway. It was like- neighborhood in New York. Yeah. I mean, the meatpacking was like, 
And they bought the building. And like 95, I started hanging out with those guys, talking to 96 uh, January. I I gave him a, an, a proposal, like a little bit of a business plan on um, a photography studio concept that I, I had to like go to 10 friends to figure out how it works. And I kind of bullshitted. It wasn't all there. And and uh, that was January of 96. I gave it to to Ares and I didn't hear from them in April. Ares called me out of the blue and he said, hey, um, where are you? I said, oh, I'm on my fifth job for the day. <laughs> he goes, where? I said, 18th Street, you know, 7th Avenue. He's like, I'll pick you up in 15 minutes. I said, all right. And I remember it was raining and I went downstairs. I sat in his car. He goes, great, we start tomorrow. So I start what? Because, you know, that studio thing you wanted to do. And that was Milk. That was the beginning of Milk. And uh, April 96, you know, I was 24. Uh, sorry, I was 25. And we started Milk Studios. And um, and it just, we opened about a year later. And it just went. I mean, it there was no stopping us. And I, I was just this kid who was like, Nothing is going to get in my way. And I remember like, you know, it was really quick because I we kind of I thrusted us into this industry, which was like fashion and media and models and photographers. And I remember like uh, a few months later, uh, you know, standing in all this construction and the guys like walked up to me. I was like, Eris Morsh, hey, I want you to meet someone. And they're like, who? I'm like, this is Calvin Klein. He's going to do all the shows here. And they were like, like the gene? <laughs> I was like, no, this is the real dude. You know, it's like, and we just took off. Our first booking was like American Vogue and and it just went. And and I think everyone was like, who are these kids? Like, we were like kids, you know? And, and you know, I remember the first time I met Anna Wintour and I remember all these people. And like, I rolled up on my skateboard to Condé Nast. And, you know, we were just these kids and we had nothing to lose. And it was like our turn. The one thing I remember is I would meet all these big people in the industry and they didn't know what I've been through, mm. that I've been through a revolution. Of this. Like, right. There was no stopping. This is the thing about refugees and immigrants, right? I don't, there's no stopping them. This is why America thrives because we, you know, it's ours to take, right? And, and I remember looking at someone in the industry, a big name, and I was like 25 and I said, you're going to have to step aside. It's our turn. Mm. And they were like, who's this kid? <laughs> and that's how we built it. And that's how Milk became what it was. And then once we became a little bit more established, that's when we decided we got to give back to the young ones. That's why we built Made Fashion Week, which was really a fashion program that was free of charge for young designers to show at Milk. This is when I when I met you. My wife yeah. came into the picture and started working with you guys because that's the inflection point where I saw... Uh, I got, you know, I walk into this place. that's like a beehive of cool. I don't know. I couldn't describe it to people except now as a community organizer, I realized what it was. You, you were organizing people. It was, yeah. it was a home. It was a safe place. And it maybe kind of cuts back to that feeling that you expressed earlier about going into your home. Right. Yeah. Like I, I felt like when I walked into milk, everybody was welcome. And it was random as fuck. Like people from yeah, all over, everywhere. right? You had these fashion people and then you'd have snowboarders and then you had me and you had just a randomest, beautiful collection, yeah. kind of like a Studio 54 type thing, but for the people. Like yeah. brought down and a lot of young people, right? And this creative yeah. energy in a place where it was celebrated. 
but it was also a business. I mean, you guys were, were, were humming and we could see this stuff starting to develop and the milk brand uh, kind of became an anchor in the meatpacking district. And that building became an anchor uh, for, for this expanding ecosystem throughout that part of the city. Uh, there's the story I think that Kanye says about Alexander Wang was like sitting on your doorstep or something. Yeah, right? I mean it was like that. You know, all the, the I remember when we put and you gave him a shot. I think that's important, Rossi. Right? Like you yeah. were the guy who gave other guys like you and gals like you a shot. Right? Yeah, these up and comers who were hustling. It was just like I remember going to all the big brands and saying, "Look, you don't know these guys yet. Yeah, they're all like young designers, and they're all young creatives. But one day you're gonna." Everyone's going to know them, but this is our roster. And it was like Alexander Wang and Prenza Schooler, Joseph Altazara. And it was like Hood Bayer. It was even Virgil Abloh and all of the beginning. They were This was all their home. And of course, Kanye was kind of the established, but he, you know, Milk has always been about emerging and established coming together and this curation. And so we did that in fashion. We did it in music. We did it in you know, creative art. We built a gallery, which we do exhibitions and shows in. And that was the moment where like Milk went from a rental photography fashion studio to a cultural center, like Warhol's factory, like PS1. Like, and that's when everything changed. And that was at the cusp of digital. That's like when pre-Instagram, pre-all this right, stuff. Right, and right. we were kind of there. The, all of those platforms were coming to you us. Were the, you were the insurgents in some levels, right? And, and, at a time when Fashion Week used to be centered up in Bryant Park, yeah. right? And you guys were like the alternative fashion, we were the, the downtown we Fashion were downtown, Week. And the idea was and like- And a lot more young people, people of color, uh, you know, people who were, who were taking bigger risks, right? Yeah. For me, yeah. you know, bouncing yeah. back, back as kind of a tourist among this world, that was, you know, the established kind of the corporate. You were the up and comers, right? Like you yeah. were the hustlers. And we were it. And we knew that, that streetwear and that, that vision was going to take over fashion. It was going to take over all the Tommy Hilfiger's, all the Calvin Klein's. It was going to take over Louis Vuitton. It was going to take over all that. And it has today. Right. Because all their creative directors, all their collaborations are with those kids now. And so, you know, luxury became cool mm. and, 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 and relative. Like a lot of people be like, oh, that's, you guys are cool. You do. It's not cool. It's rel it, We were relative. Mm. We knew what music, what 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 it all meant, like the art, the photography, the architecture, everything came together, and it's always been that. It's a clan. It's a it's a group, and now it's just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and you know, and so that's what Milk Studios were with its nine divisions today. We in New York, we we have about 150 employees in the meatpacking, just in Milk Studios and its group. In LA, we have about a hundred, and we have a big studio there, and they do the same. and And then about four or five years ago, we decided we're going to build our own consumer product line, which we then, as a kind of as a side project, created Milk Makeup. Mm. And the makeup was like, okay, we're not going to build a makeup for professional makeup artists. Makeup, we're just going to do it for our community. This amazing community we built around Milk, and so put a small team together at Milk uh, and then I we started ideating and I remember walking into a studio and saying that we were shooting Sephora's campaign. You know, it's a big retailer in right. beauty. I walked in and I was like, uh, I went to the creative director. I'm like, listen, you know, we've been working for a while together, but like, what if we have an idea for a makeup line? Like, who do we talk to? 
And they're like, they're called merchants. <laughs> so I was like, oh, what does that mean? So we flew to San Francisco, pitched them this idea for Milk Makeup. And it was about our community. It was about like, the whole concept was, it wasn't what you put on or what, what kind of makeup you do. It's like what you do in it that matters. Mm. So the idea was that we're going to tell the story of everybody who loves their shit, but we're going to tell the story of what they do for their, them, the people. Right, right. And we're never going to talk about like how you do your makeup. We're never going to talk about... So we kind of did this concept and it blew up. And, and it, it has blown up, right? I mean, you've yes. had a lot of successful ventures out of the milk mothership. Yeah. But this one, Nothing on a visibility, like revenue... Impact yeah. standpoint, yeah, is, impact is, as well. I'm big business, but impact because when I was coming here today, yeah, my the babysitter was with my kid, and I was like, oh, I'm going to interview this guy, and she so I said the milk milk makeup. She goes, I know milk makeup, yeah, and she grew up in Venezuela. We were walking in here, one of the the women who work in the in the in the car clubs says, I'm wearing milk makeup right now, yeah, right? it's and it's, this has gone global. It's on gone, a, it's gone really big. I mean, it's only four. It will be four years old in yeah, February, yeah. So it took off, but it is, it's really, you know, the idea is that, that, um, you know, we were, we're not a beauty company. We're not a makeup company. We're, we're community builders and we're content creators and we're creatives. And we found the concept of beauty really fucked up because you can't just talk about the beauty without talking about the ugly. And so what we did is we decided like, we are going to be a platform. That like a million kids, boys and girls, are going to talk about the concept of beautiful. Because 99.99% of people don't think they're beautiful, you know. And, and for 20 years at Milk, we've shot every campaign of the biggest cosmetic companies. It's usually a huge supermodel that looks so incredible that 99.99% of the world will never look like her. Or a makeup artist that does an amazing eye or lip that not anyone back home can ever reproduce that, right? right. So it's the whole thing. And they, we call that aspirational marketing, but it's really like, look at it, you'll never be it, but buy the products, you know? Right, right. So our theory was, we're not going to do that. We're never going to tell you how to do your makeup. We're not going to work with big makeup artists. What we're going to do is just talk about our community and- and what people feel inside. And that could be beauty. That could be one day I feel powerful. Another day I feel ugly. Another, and that's why I think it's resonated with this generation. Mm. So we are a Gen Z brand. We're the fourth fastest growing brand at Sephora. And we launched in the UK. We launched in Europe last year. Uh, and now it's going global and we're working on it. It's, the, it's been my full-time job for the last three years. I've been working mostly on that. But it's it's... You know, there's very few companies in the world that are B2B, business to business, that switch to B2C, which is business to consumer. There is, I mean, it's lit, the world is littered with companies failing at right. that. And we somehow were able to do it. And I think it's because we were really true to what we believe in. And there's a real sense of that value set in everything that you do. You also got to do it with your wife. Yeah, right? who, who is who is also amazingly talented, yeah. has her own story from coming from the UK here, and you guys are this amazing, dynamic, glamorous couple, and you're traveling the world, you know, working together. You, you're this uh, yeah. super power team, man, on a, on, a, on another level. Yeah, Zena is incredible. So I for mean, folks that don't know your wife, yeah. explain to them. So, Zena Roberts Rossi. Um, 
you know, she's she she's you've probably seen she does a lot of television. She works with E News and E Television. She does all the red carpet stuff. She um, also is a, you know editor at large of Mary Claire. She used to be a beauty editor. So when we first kicked off Beauty, I was like. I went to her. I was like, yeah, I don't know anything about this. I was like, I'm just a burly dude. Like, talk to me about this, you know? She's also wonderful. She's, She's so, so great. kind yeah. and brilliant and thoughtful. And when I kind of, you know, got exposed to that world of fashion, she was one of the nicest, most authentic people. You know, someone who would stop and look you in the eye and ask you how you're doing. We would talk about kids. We would yeah. talk about other things. You know, she she's from... She's born in Manchester, England. She's a northern girl. They call so they're like amazing. And I mean, it was we have an amazing team because our other two founders that I brought in were also Georgie Gravel, who's a filmmaker at Milk, that became our creative director of makeup, and Diana Ruth, who also is an amazing. She's the wizard. She's the one who makes all. The, we're a vegan line. We're cruelty free. We're clean. We don't use any silicone and parabens and all that stuff you see in other makeup. So our, our line, so we, we're this four dynamic duo. And then me and Zana being husband and wife, like you always hear horror stories about working with family. None here. Like it was one of the greatest moves and it's, it's to work together. We, you know, we try not to bring it home. Um, but you know, when you look at our kids, you know, it's like, they're, they're, I look at them. I'm like, we have two daughters, they're twins and five and a half years old. And I'm like, they're half Iranian Persian descent, half Manchester, England, you know, hardcore Northern born and raised in New York city, you know, like at NYU born at 31st and first, like, this, these are going to be two of the toughest girls you've ever met. They're coming, right? <laughs> Juno and Rumi, they're five and a half now, right? Yeah, and you yeah. guys were about a year ahead of Lauren and I when my son was born. And we looked to you guys kind of as a, a bit of a parenting role model because you've kept family center and you're in this world that sometimes can be so celebrity driven and so image based, but you guys are, you know, bringing it down with the kids and keeping it. We went to your birthday party with your, <laughs> your girls, which was like the most fun thing ever. But how do you, um, I feel like there's superheroes being cultivated in this magic place yeah. and I can't wait to see what, what they're going to do. But it's also, again, like a great American success story, right? Yeah. Like where they, that you two can come together, that you're starting a real estate company time, an Iranian guy with, with an Israeli guy, given what's going on in the world right now. Yeah. Like that's what we need more of is, yeah, is collaboration I mean, and understanding and, and the idea that we can meet in a central place and do something really special if we have a common goal. And that's what you've done throughout your journey. But I got to ask you, you know, you have so much inspiration, but you're also very deeply involved. You're tracking on what's going on in the world. And I asked this of all our guests, Mazdaq Rossi, what makes you angry? What makes me angry is the hate. You know, the hate that I read about and the hate that's like percolating in this country. That's, you know, just being almost like invited up. And we all, we all know and everybody knows racism and a lot of this hate has always been there. I grew up in the Midwest and, you know, I grew up with, you know, central Illinois and, and all, and, and you, you, it's always been there, but like you always knew that every generation was going to correct it and, and, and bury it, not under the ground, but like kill it, you know? And I think what really makes me angry, uh, some people say it makes me sad. It actually pisses me off is that 
there is an allowance for it to kind of come back. And, um, and, and that is the part that I hate. And I, rem- I remember being 10 years old on a playground in, in Illinois, playing with this young kid and we we're running around. We were one year in this country and um, this parent came and grabbed the kid and looked at me in the face. It was a dad and said, go back to your country. I was crushed. Mm. I was I was so scared. Imagine what I just mm. came through, a revolution and a hatred and I saw but but I I knew that was one person. Mm. It didn't did you know years later I like forgave them and I was like they're ignorant, you know. Mm. And like you hear more and more. And of course we're in the social media so it comes up more. Mm. But that narrative we have to crush. We have to fight. Um and that's what, you know, when I read about citizens, Americans that are, just happen to be born in Iran or Iran, being held up at, you know, it's going to happen to me tomorrow. And that's why I wanted to, when you said, hey, come on the show, I wanted to come. I, I just flew in. I travel a lot. I know that's probably going to happen to me. Maybe not next week or week if this is still going on. That, you know, JFK, they're going to pull me aside and put me in a room for eight hours. Just like it's happening. It's not happening to a few people. It's happening to hundreds of of like Americans who love this country, who grew up here, who play basketball, football, who's assimilated, never thought they would ever going to be pulled aside. Go, you know what? In your passport, your U.S. American passport says you were born in Iran. Like that can't happen, you know, because that is, we we are, you know, if, if I got called tomorrow to serve this country, I would do it in a minute. I am American. You know, and it's like, that's going to be devastating. And we need to be really, we, we have to fight that. And um, it's not okay. I love you, man. <laughs> One of the many reasons I love you, man. But I think that I was excited to have you on this show so that you could expand upon those ideas because you are such a powerful um, story and a powerful leader and a powerful voice and an ambassador for this country. I mean, yeah. you're you're going around the world as a positive example of what this country can do and what this country's all about. When we were on our way in, we were talking about the events of the last couple of days. I was on CNN till one in the morning last night with Chris Cuomo covering the bombings. And, you know, as we record this, thankfully, there were no American casualties, no, no Iraqi casualties. Things are settled for now. But I think we all know that we're in a new normal now. And our president, we hope, can control himself. But if he can't, he can continue to instigate challenges around the world. And there's one issue in particular that, that, that I wanted to talk to you about, given your background and your focus on the arts, is talk to me, Rossi, about your reaction to hearing Trump say we would bomb Iranian cultural sites. Yeah, I, it's, it just shows you also like there's no one reviewing or helping him with what he tagged tweets, you know, like this was the most asinine thing I've ever heard. And, you know, if you would have just took that part out, you know, would have been another tweet, but you know, it it would be like us bombing the pyramids. I mean, this is not about Iran. This is about civilization. There are over 20 UNESCO heritage sites in Iran that go back thousands of years um you know and it just makes no sense i mean you could just tell this is like 
Unfortunately, it's the president saying it, so there's a lot of weight to it. But it's so elementary in like trying to evoke something. But the repercussions, on top of being illegal and, you know, America, you know, going from being good guys to like being evil people, um, you know, it would be like blowing up Persopolis, which is like the cradle of civilization, would be like us going and blowing up the top of the pyramids just to prove to the Egyptians that we can or, you know, it makes no sense. And if this is the thing, I mean, if you really look at cultural sites in Iran, they're divided into two groups, right? There's really ancient stuff. There is like, and it's and in America, maybe in America we can't grasp the fact of like, I was reading this great article about from another Iranian that says, you know, we get up in the morning and walk across a bridge that's 3,000 years old. Like maybe Americans don't realize that, but it would be like someone blowing up Mount Rushmore or like and the know, Brooklyn Bridge and the Brooklyn Bridge and the Statue of Liberty and, and, it's like, and the Hollywood sign and Lambeau Field and the right, Grand Canyon, but, right? It's not just about killing people. It's not. It's, it's about it's, it's about erasing your culture, erasing culture. Yeah, and that's not going to go like we. There, you know that that I think makes no sense. There's no strategy. And it's to not this. what Americans do. Right. It's what it's what ISIS does. It's what the Nazis do. Right. Hundred percent. It, we lose our moral high ground so quickly. Immediately, and we become the bad guys. Yeah. Right. And then there's the the other part, which is the other where it's that they're religious sites, right? Mm -hmm. So one is they're cultural sites and right. they're ancient, they're historic, and they belong to the world. They don't belong to Iran. They belong to the world. It's our civilization where we all came from, you know? And then the other side is they're religious, right? They're the religious cultural places. Like you want to hit, you know, a 700-year-old mosque that that's going to unite. That's not going to make us any safer. Then you have the entire islamic world that's going to be up in arms none of this makes sense that's not this is all escalation and i think everything going forward needs to hopefully be about de-escalation and you know and i think the one thing with iranians hopefully back home and the people you know i don't have a lot of connection there and a lot of our relatives we haven't talked to for years but you know they're people too and it's like I think it's it's all about trying to de-escalate and you know there are children there there are people there um and I hope I hope that it starts to come back down and all this rhetoric stops but the cultural thing was just like you know in a way you want to just go oh this was a blunder I had to talk to you about that and I also wonder if it's people like you and this ecosystem of your friends that are artists and creators and business people that may be our most effective strategy in combating this, right? Like they can hate Trump and have, you know, a Kanye album and some milk makeup and, you know, consume your media and you can kind of get around some of that in a way that culture, only culture can. Right? Yeah. There, there's 81 million people in Iran today, right? It's big. 60% of the 81 million are under the age of 30. People that are young, you know, they're not American haters. Yeah. And they're not Western. Most of them are, they, you know, they have relatives here. There's 500,000 Iranian Americans in this country. There's 300,000 in Los Angeles. You know, they call it Tehranjalis, yeah, yeah. you know. And they're all vibrant Americans. You you would be a, a great if we had well, an ambassador to Iran. 
if, if in, in, in another world with another president and maybe in the future, I don't know. No, you're exactly the kind of cultural ambassador. We, I mean that because we've got to appeal to those young people. We've got to appeal, appeal to something that is personal and not political and something that's aspirational and something that's uniting. And, and so much of what you've done has been that ambassadorship. You know, you're an ambassador right now for makeup. <laughs> like it's, I, I, I did not expect, you know, you did to, to be this ambassador <laughs> for makeup, right? But you could equally be an ambassador for American culture and for Chicago. Would, would you ever, Run for office? I've told you I want you to run for mayor. I told I you, you I want you to run for mayor. I know, I know. <laughs> but would you ever run for office or serve? And if if they called you to, there's a really important need for cultural. I I um, think ambassadors. I think my best place. And you've met you've met many of the candidates over the yeah, years. I you've hosted many of yep. them, right? Yeah. And and I'm not going to. So I'm, would you? I'm would involved. You, I'm, I think it's important to be involved. I I said I did a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton a, a while ago when she was just a. a senator and, and and i remember she was in the milk gallery and she said to me she goes you really really into this like you're really involved like why and i said well i i lost one country i don't want to lose another one mm. like i really i'm one of the few people in this world that like mm. saw you know you lose you see a government and you see you know people take what we have for granted and and they think it can never end and it can, and it doesn't happen in one shot. It erodes over a period of time. Mm. And I think we are in that period and we have to fight to keep it going. And, and, and so I don't think my job, I don't think I am in a place to be in the forefront. I think I've always been the more effective being sort of in the background and helping and shaping. And I think that, you know, even with the businesses we've built and the, communities we've built and the collaborations we've done um you know it's never been based on politics you know i i heard a great thing a long time ago uh i think i love policy i hate politics you yeah know? yeah i mean if we can help create great policy just like we do in our businesses every day and processes and what we stand for and our values fine politics i mean let's look at washington dc it's yeah. basically like you know one million lawyers in one city that's not a place i want to be <laughs> what do you rossi what do you think of the candidates um have you you've met a lot of them yeah yeah i mean i'll be honest i'm 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 for biden i i, I met him and and i know the family and i think he has the best shot i think he's getting better and better and and you know it's boot camp um and you know the most important thing as as a democrat and, and i want obviously i care about a lot of the i don't like to use the word liberal like i think when you say like you want women to have choice you that's you're not a liberal choice means you can be pro life or not you know like right. so so i look at it as just like i'm definitely think that you know i do think that the best way for Trump to move on is for us to pick somebody else. And I think that um, the people need to speak and I think they will. I'm optimistic. I, I think that um, when it's going to finally come down to a choice, people are going to make the right choice because we can do better than this. Mm. You yeah. saw, you saw Bloomberg up close a lot. And I think it's important for people outside of New York to better understand the perspective. You were a business owner. Yeah. Right. You were in one of these development, you know, economic development areas that has now yeah. exploded during you blew up while Bloomberg was mayor. Right. Yeah. I mean, that the kind of parallel. What What are your thoughts on, on Bloomberg as a leader? Yeah. And then him, you know, entering this this race right now. 
Yeah, I, I was on a few committees that he had set up and got to meet him. And and um, he's amazing. But, you know, I, I do think that um, going back to where we are today, I, I think he got a late start. I, I'm not a political expert, but um, I, I think that it's, you know, we're, I I do want to see him on stage with the rest of the group debating and that really hasn't happened yet so it's a little bit of a sideshow for me yeah even though I think the world of him I think he's an incredible person I think he's done amazing for New York I think he could be very good it's just like I think the whole thing unfortunately a little bit on the democratic side it's a little bit unorganized and and maybe a little bit a little yeah, bit yeah, like, a little it's bit. like so so we're all sitting back like trying to figure out like when is the stars going to start aligning right, yeah i've talked about right? a lot on the that. show when are they going to have their game of thrones moment when are they yeah. going to all unite and i think bloomberg um did get a late start i ran into mayor nutter last night at at new york one and he's now i think one of the leaders for the bloomberg campaign he used to be the philadelphia mayor um, and I think a, a, a very effective mayor and an effective voice. And I, I, I kind of, I've been asking them, you know, Bloomberg said his goal is to defeat Trump and, and he, he wants to be president, right? But if you take him personally out of the mix and recognize that if the goal that most of us hope will happen is to defeat Trump, right? Not because it's partisan, but because it's in our strategic best interest. Bloomberg is like bringing a guy with a million guns to the fight. Because beyond him, he's going to run two Super Bowl ads at $10 million a piece, right? Yeah. If he can take shots at Trump that weaken Trump for whoever is the eventual nominee, then I'm all in. I think that's something people yeah. have been forgetting about Bloomberg is he is strategic. He is incredibly calculating. He's run the numbers. He mm -hmm. knows it's probably like 4% chance right. he gets the nomination. Yeah. But there's probably a 95% chance that he can make an impact. 100%. And that's what he's done throughout his career, yeah. whether it's in philanthropy or the economic yeah. development of New York City or the smoking ban or guns. So if he can throw a lot of rounds, heat rounds, into this fight that weaken Trump, that distract Trump, he's, throw, he's rolling out Judge Judy this week, which I think is brilliant because yeah. she's been very effective. And the idea of Judge Judy coming after Trump for the next year is going to hit him hard in, in his base, yeah. right? Among the people that really can be swayed. So I welcome Bloomberg. I admire Bloomberg. I don't know, you know, I don't think he's going to be the nominee, yeah. but I think people need to take a step back, especially Democrats who are just, you know, constantly eating their own yeah. and look at the larger strategic goal. And the strategic goal should be to improve America, move America forward. And we can only do that, I think, if Trump's out of the way. Right now, the biggest danger is what Trump might do. Right. He could have had the press conference today and gone off the handle and started saying more fiery shit and set, you know, things back instead of forward. We're hoping I'm rooting right now for the best possible Donald Trump, but I'm preparing for the worst. And I think that's what we should all prepare for. And having a Bloomberg in the fight will help that. And I think having you in any capacity yeah. will help that. But I'm glad to hear you're optimistic, Rossi. And I want to ask you an another question as we come toward the end of this and we've been enjoying this. <laughs> I mean, we drank all the tequila. I finished. I drank all the tequila too. You Times did. like this, we got, and now we're moving over to the Johnny Walker. But um, you, you bring positivity and you bring energy and you bring this sense of welcoming that I think is really important. And it, it, it's, I think it's American too. Yeah. I, having traveled the world myself, I feel like people underestimate how nice Americans are. Sometimes they're annoyingly nice, but you know, they, they're welcoming. Right. Yeah. And uh, I think there's good reason to be optimistic and there's always reason to be happy. So, Mazda Grassi, what makes you happy? 
What makes me happy, you know, is really like this concept of health, right? Health in my family, health in my kids, health in my wife, health in my country. Like, you know, there is, you know, we can have material objects all we want, but like when someone goes, you know, when everyone does a toast, you know, to health, it's the most important thing. But that also means for, for, for our country, it means for uh, our businesses, it means for, you know, you can take it to like stock market, you can take it to all of these things. Health is, should be the barometer of everything. And, um, and that's, I think like, you know, we finished the year and we have about nine different businesses and sat down with all the teams. We had board meeting and it was like, even from a business point of view, um, you know, it was like at the end of the meeting, at the end of the board meetings, we're like, man, everything's healthy. Like we're, we're very lucky in the term, you know, there's a lot of volatility out there. And so, you know, and I, and, and you, you really want to go through like all of these indicators in life, like business and family and children and parents and, and just be able to say one thing, like it's healthy, it's healthy. And when it's not, you know, it's devastating. You go in and you, you have a great support system to help it. And, and I think like that's really the approach people should have on, on this country is like really looking at it. Are we healthy? Like, do we feel good and safe? And, and, and you know, when you read like countries in the world, like we're reading like the quality of life, like yeah. the happiest places yeah, on earth, yeah. you know, it's like, you may think we can have all the money in the world. Like they're winning you know it's like mm-hmm. they're winning mm-hmm. when people are like living longer and they're enjoying themselves and you know and you know here we're doubling our defense spending and millet like to a point where it's like everyone's fighting about like health if you just took a fraction of that money and put it in there like you, you've resolved it so i don't know i just think like you know a country is just like antibodies the country is just like a human body and you know when it starts to build so much defense systems there's a reason there's bacteria there's mm. there's it's not healthy and i think that we we just have to like that's the part that that i i care about and um and you know it's not i mean it's crazy right now so we have to be optimistic yeah because if if everyone joins the bandwagon and starts talking this way then we're going to go down a slippery slope, which we're mm. kind of on. Yeah. I, I was on a, a TV show recently and before the show began, you know, some of the folks on there were saying, you know, I'm panicked. You know, th- we should be panicking. I said, no, you should not be panicking. Yeah. You should be angry. You should be involved. You should be concerned, but panic is not going to help. And especially if you're on television, especially if you're in the media, if you're in the, you, you have to be clear headed and thoughtful and focused, but you also in times like this have to take a breath Right. So I've been encouraging people to breathe, um, but also, you know, find the things that do make you happy. And as a, a seer of the future in terms of culture, my wife, from the moment she met you and met milk was like, these guys are going to be huge. They're going to be huge. They're going to be big. And my wife has a beautiful talent for spotting that and picking that, but so do you. So take a step back, culture, music, art, 
Uh, you did an amazing activation with Scott Campbell, I think, at Milk. Yeah. We had on the show a couple months ago. Oh, great. Yeah. Where they went into Milk. I read about this. And they stuck their arm. People yeah. stuck their arm into a hole yeah. and got a tattoo from Scott Campbell. They didn't know what it was going to be until they yeah. pulled their arm out, right? It was a social experiment. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was like, I remember sitting with Scott and he's such an amazing man. And he was like, you know, like, we got to do this social experiment. It was called Whole Glory. And the idea was that you know, we, we just had a hole in the wall. Yeah. And um, you you stick your hand through it. And and they didn't know Scott Campbell was behind it. No, they knew Scott's Oh, they there, did know Scott. Okay. But you can't talk to him. You can't say anything. And he, he, for one hour, your hand's through this hole. And he does whatever he wants on the other side. And then you pull your arm out after an hour. And you live with it for the rest of your life. And his concept was so crazy. So at first I was like- Video's really cool. If, you have, if you're listening and you haven't seen it, you can Google it, check out some of the video and go back and listen to Scott Campbell, brilliant yeah. artist um, yeah, and, and trailblazer. So we but, did that We did that in our gallery and then we, we kind of did it in, in, in LA and did it in Miami. We kind of toured it all over. But it was incredible how many, there would be like waiting lists. Yeah. And people were flying in from all over the the world people coming in from Russia it's not like drunk Johnny on the corner with a big pen yeah, doing no. jailhouse tattoos and, right you know, like, granted he's one of the top tattooers in the yeah. world and he is but I I was all I was so like oh my god dude, these people they're gonna live with, like you like you can't pull it on and go nah no. but you <laughs> but you see what's coming so talk to me what music or art or what's got you excited for people who might not be in your world is there anything that's got you excited that yeah, you want to share with people that this, you should tell them to check out? There's this new generation, you know, coming up, like they call them Gen Z, whatever. And what's, what is really exciting about them is that they're kind of the Renaissance. Um, they don't want to be an architect or a filmmaker or a designer or a musician. It's like all <laughs> like, yeah. and this is like why I'm optimistic about where the world is going because they're kind of a little bit of everything. <sighs> And they can, you know, they can make a song, they can make a film, they can design a building. Um, and so this Renaissance generation's coming up and they are, they care about sustainability. They care about cruelty-free with the animal. They, they're just like, you know, it's funny, you interview a lot of them. We do it at Milk a lot. And it, everything starts with like, um, you know, I care about this. I'm I'm going to make an impact. I'm going to change. I mean, kind of Greta's in that group, yeah. right? You know, Greta Thunberg, the, Greta Thunberg, the, the, the environmental And they're actors, all yeah. over. And, and they have really thick skin. And they're the post-social generation. Mm. So instead of thinking like they're going to shy away from it, they're realizing how they can use it, not just for their own self-promotion, uh, but like issues. Mm. So we're, we're raising a generation that I'm really, really happy about. And, and they're giving us hope. And I think um, parents of those kids or the ones that are now being 14, 15, you know, coming into the workforce are going to find them like revolutionary. Mm. Is it, I don't want to press you because I remember like ASAP Rocky, all these guys will be coming through your shop. Yeah. Any, any musicians or creatives that in particular you want to shout out or tell people to check out yeah wanna... there's there's actually this young girl we just worked with her her name is Layla Blue she's this young I think she's like 16 um 15 16 17 I'm not sure um she's gonna blow up and 
you know, a few years ago when, when she was 15, I met with Billie Eilish. Billie came to see us at Milk. She just rolled in with her mom and her brother and 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 spent some time with her. And, and she blew. And I remember walking out of the office telling the whole crew, I'm like, that girl's going to take it over. Yeah. And I think Layla, Layla Blue is one of them. So if you haven't um, heard her, just go on YouTube and download her stuff. And she's the next one, I think, coming up. There's a, there's a bunch of them. And, you know, there's a lot of like young... What I love is there's a lot of young photographers and filmmakers coming mm. up too. Um, on Milk, on our Instagram, we have about a million followers on Milk. If you go to Milk and follow it, um, we just released the top 10 next gen I saw that, yeah. kids that we think are are kind of like and they're all over the world they're from Tokyo they're from all over that we think are the next ones that are going to blow up and and they're they're all kind of like revolutionary kids in their own and in, in their own way and and that's the best place to see them and every year we release our like top 10 and um it's cool. And that's reason to be hopeful going into 2020, man. Yeah. Reason to be happy and optimistic. And you are reason to be happy and optimistic before we end. We have a ceremony that is reason to be hopeful and optimistic. And so I have the giving of the gifts. Um, yes. And I know you've been on the road a lot. So we have three pieces of this. I, I will yeah, hold, I'll hold your mic because oh. we're for audio first. Folks back home, you know this. You've been asked. This is starting to become a thing now. But as we go into 2020, so we have peeps. Okay, we got peeps. We started the show around Easter. We've kept this theme going, folks. If you like this or don't like it, let me know. Hashtag Angry Americans. But peeps is not yet an official sponsor. Hold on, before you get to that. So here's the question, Rossi. Yeah. Uh, Three colors of peeps: blue, pink, and yellow. Yeah. Which color do you pick, and why? Pink. Why? Well, pink is just like it's. You know, female empowerment. I don't know. It's like, As the father, no, of, I, father of, yeah, of girls, yeah. right? You yeah, got two I girls. It. It's um, you know what we were we we worked um, we did a project where we worked on um, a new football team in Miami, the the Miami uh, uh, team down there, and one of the colors I wanted for the XFL or is it for the MLS? Oh, for the MLS. Yeah, our, our oh, creative yeah. agency, myself. By and the way, you're also just doing the branding for a soccer team in Miami. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. This is the and, kind of uh, shit that you drop along so, the way so while we're we, hanging out. I, we were yeah. crazy about men wearing pink. We wanted like the burliest soccer dudes to wear pink. And now it's like the hottest thing. I love that. And I think that's where you start breaking down all those you See, know, norms and, and whatnot. I think that, that has not been picked often. And I love the reason you hold this mic for me, Rossi. All right. So that's phase one. We're going to come to the bottle last. But next, we got a note in there. But then we got yeah. some uh, American-made swag. Yeah. Uh, you are the master of merchandise. So we might need your help kind of taking our merch to the next level. Um, but I'll hold your mic for you. You got some Angry Americans merch made by the guys from Oscar Mike who are in Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Oh, they did. So these guys make this in Chicago, veteran-owned uh, business oh, out there. So yeah. some Righteous and Angry Americans merch, super comfortable. You can wear that. So I'm going to wear this next time I go to JFK in case I get pulled yes. over. You it might not. Say, be. It'll just say Angry American, yeah. like if they hold me in the yeah. back for like eight hours. <laughs> well, they're like, you were born in Iran. Well, you, better be like, call, you better bring, you sometimes <laughs> travel with Sean White. You better bring fucking Sean yeah, White. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will bring Sean White. <laughs> and, all right. And then lastly, hold the mic for me, Rossi. Yeah. We uh, always pick an American whiskey that I inspires you and inspires yeah. me. And I try to find something now. This is brand new. And it's from uh, the, the folks at High West right. Whiskey out in oh, Utah. Yeah. And it's called Yippie Kaye. Yeah, I love it. It's a, it's a blend of whiskeys, but they do it in a, in a Syrah barrel. They do it in wine barrels. Mm. And I think it's about this kind of Yippie Kaye 
was an expression popular with the cowboys yeah. in the 19th century in the, in the West. And you've been kind of a cowboy, man. You, 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 you rode out of Iran and rode into, yeah. into Chicago and you've been a trailblazer and, you know, you have this amazingly uh, adventurous spirit. And, and you. You, you're on a ride that's incredible for us to witness and us to watch. I've been so grateful uh, to have you as a friend. Anybody who's never heard about Rossi before, they can find you on Instagram. Check yeah. out Milk. Where, where, what else do you want to point them to? Um, yeah, you can, you can, you know, you can follow us on on Milk on Instagram, Milk Makeup um, as well. But. You know, I'm around. I, I, I'm always in the background. So you're fascinating. You got to watch. If you want to watch a guy living an amazing life and doing yeah. some cool shit, follow Rossi. He's definitely um, a person that that I am honored and privileged to know. I'm honored to know your family Thank and you. to know Zana and to know the girls. And uh, I'm so grateful that you joined us now. Given what's going on yeah, in the world, yeah. I think people who are like maybe they weren't familiar with you. Now that you've heard Rossi, you understand why he's such an important, iconic, and inspiring American. And we've just been grateful to have you on the show and grateful for all you do for this country and all you're going to do for this country, man. It's, it's an you, honor man. to have you on the show and to be your friend, Absolutely. man. And what you do and what you've created here and your podcast is, is, you know, we've been talking a long time about this. So I'm very proud of you. Yeah, I'm psyched to get it going, man. I'm following your lead. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Mazdaq Rossi here from Classic Car Club in New York. Happy New Year. Cheers, man. Cheers, brother. Yeah, shit's crazy out there. But no matter what's going on, there's always a way to make an impact. It's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every single pod, I offer you a way of converting your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that will channel your energy, make you feel good, and make a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. Yeah, it's crazy out there. It's tense. But there's always reason to celebrate. Even in the toughest of times. And this week, I got one for you. Yep, it's my birthday. Me, Richard Nixon, Dave Matthews. I don't want any presents. I don't want any tweets. What I do want you to do is send me a little present of action. That's what you can do for my birthday. As our troops continue to face serious danger in the Middle East, they need help. They need support. And a nonprofit that I've told you about in the past, TAPS, will be urgently needed. Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. I've told you about them before, but they're needed now more than ever. So if in the last couple of days you're watching your TV or you're scrolling nonstop on Twitter and maybe you're powerless in the podcast and you might feel helpless, don't. You can do something positive right now to make a difference. Learn more and support this critical organization by going to taps.org. While the entire country was riveted this week to the news, waiting to see how bad the damage was in Iraq, how many might have died, this is what TAPS was tweeting. TAPS shares in worry that all have with the news of an Iranian missile attack on a U.S. military base in Iraq. We know that for those who have already borne many battles 
and represent thousands of ultimate sacrifices already given, that this news is not something just heard, but a memory deeply felt. Tap said that you're not alone in this worrisome hour, nor will you be in the days to come. Taps is here, always holding you in our hearts and in our hands. And now we join those hearts and hands together with all Americans in continuing for hope for our brave service members and their families. Taps always says that they listen, they care, and they're there. They support survivors through peer-based emotional support, community-based care, casework assistance, and a 24-7 National Military Survivor Helpline. Taps is there for the everlasting mourning and grief for those days that take you to your knees. Rossi grew up in the Chicago area. So did Kanye West. And so did Henry Mayfield. Henry Mayfield was a young soldier that was killed in Kenya last week. Henry Mayfield, 23, of Evergreen Park, Illinois. People called him Mitch. He was an air traffic services mechanic. In the midst of all the madness happening in the last couple of weeks, he should not be forgotten. Local news interviewed his dad. His dad said he spent a year in college studying business before he ran out of money and decided to enlist in the Army. He really couldn't afford college, so he figured the Army would help him through that. That's what his dad said. So his dad said Mitch's decision to join the Army in August 2017 at age 20 was informed by a desire to build a better future for himself and a sense of duty to serve others. He was looking for better opportunities, and he enjoyed serving. He was that kind of kid. He would help. It fit him. It was good for him. He enjoyed being in the Army. Mitch had been in Kenya since October, where he worked installing, maintaining, and repairing heating and cooling systems, his dad said. Before that, he was stationed at Fort Rucker in Alabama. When they spoke last week, his dad said his son told him he felt safe. His dad said it was a really nice conversation. He wasn't scared, nervous, upset. He felt good. Now his dad's clinging to that final conversation as he grieves his loss, a loss that I can't even imagine. People describe Mitch as bubbly in a life of a party. He loved playing sports. He loved basketball. He loved spending time with his family. He was a huge LeBron James fan, even though the Bulls were his hometown team. Mitch's family traveled to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware this week to collect his body and returned it to Chicago, where they planned to bury him. Arrangements for a military funeral are being made. This is why TAPS is needed. In 2018 alone, more than 6,000 newly bereaved loved ones came to TAPS for care. That's 17 survivors every day. They provide program services and support for the families of the fallen. Every year, they have more than 200 programs that welcome and support thousands of participants. They answer more than 19,000 calls to their National Military Survivor Helpline and make over 28,000 survivor outreach calls every year. They have expertise, and they've conducted 200 training sessions on grief trauma and suicide postvention for military commands and other professionals across America and around the world. Most of their staff are survivors of military loss who've grown up in the TAPS family and have now made it their profession to pay the way forward. TAPS has assisted more than 90,000 surviving families, casualty officers, and caregivers. And they also have these incredible good grief camps for kids that are held annually in Washington over Memorial Day weekend. And if you're a family member grieving the loss of a fallen service member or you know someone who can use their support, you can call that TAPS 24-7 Military Survivor Helpline or you can go to TAPS.org. The number is 800-959-TAPS. That's 800-959-TAPS or go to TAPS.org, T-A-P-S. They welcome you to connect with them about giving, volunteering, professional engagement, or even working there. So if you're feeling helpless, don't. There's a way to get involved 
and there are ways to help. And you can give me a great birthday gift. Just go to taps.org. I would appreciate that birthday gift. Just do it for me, would you? Oh, thanks. You're so sweet. Go, Birdie. It's your birthday. Go, Birdie. And if you've got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media. Use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry. Be active. All right, got some important information to put out to you no matter where you are. First off, we have more events coming. Yes, events. I've told you in 2020, we're going to take this show on the road, and it is absolutely happening. Next up, Tuesday, January 14th in New York City, I'm going to do a special sit-down with Errol Lewis of New York One. If you're not familiar with Errol Lewis, he's one of the best political analysts in the entire country, and he's going to specifically talk to me about Bloomberg, we're going to talk about Trump, and we're going to preview the next upcoming debate. It's at the Battery Park City Association next Tuesday, January 14th. You can go to angryamericans.us backslash events to get free tickets for that. And the week after, I'm going to do another event in New York at a place called Betaworks with Yale Onstedt. She spent 18 years working as a CIA officer, was a national security advisor to Biden, and she's an expert on elections integrity and used to work in Facebook's business division. She's a diplomat, corporate social responsibility strategist, and the head of a global risk firm. We're going to talk about how and if technology companies are going to be able to help or hurt the election. So check that out January 21st with Yale Einstein at Betaworks in New York. Again, go to angryamericans.us backslash events for that. It's going to be a good one. Also, I've got another very cool one coming also in New York. And this is this is kind of exciting to share with you. Game on! Game on! Game on! He shoots, he scores! Oh! One for one! That is going wild! Car! Car! February 8th. The FDNY hockey team with our friend Rob Sarah. If you haven't heard, Rob Sarah, 9-11 first responder, hero, awesome guy, and some of our friends in Chicago have put together a charity hockey game between firefighters and cops. It's happening in New York in Staten Island Skating Pavilion. This is a big hockey game between firefighters and cops. The FDNY hockey team is going to play the Chicago Police Department hockey team. And this all happened because of the Angry Americans community. It's going to be 6 p.m. Saturday, February 8th on Staten Island. You can find out more information if you go to angryamericans.us. All the proceeds are going to go to the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation, which supports 9-11 first responders. That's happening February 8th in New York. I told you lots of events are coming. Now, look, I know they're all in New York, but worry not. We've got more coming in other places, including... San Diego and LA. That's right. The week of February 11th, it looks like I'm coming your way. I'm going to do my best to have a live event in San Diego and LA the week of February 11th, just in time for Valentine's Day. So check out angryamericans.us, follow us on all our social media channels, and we'll share the latest. Also, some other news to share. Tune in Friday, January 10th, on Sirius XM channel 124. If you have Sirius XM, I'm going to be back on the radio filling in for Chris Cuomo on his Let's Get After It show from 12 to 2 p.m. It replays at 7 to 9 p.m. There will be a debate of the day. I will take your calls and I will be stalking the halls of Sirius XM looking for Howard Stern. I definitely want him on this show and I'm going to try to invite him in person. 
But if you have SiriusXM, check me out on channel 124 Friday, backing up our friend Cuomo. I will take your calls and we'll keep the discussion going. And a big thanks to a few folks that helped make this episode happen. Mazdaq Rossi. Rossi is awesome. Big shout out to his entire team at Milk and to his amazing family, especially his wife, Zana, and the superheroes in the making, his amazing little girls, Rumi and Juno. Thank you so much for all your support for him and for all things good. Big shout out to Mercy Rich, Mighty Mercy Rich, Creative Chris Rosenthal, Radical Roy Velchek, and the whole outstanding team at Righteous Media. Righteous Media powers this whole show, and they power Righteous Media. So check out all the platforms and content around it. Bill Schultz powering us into 2020, producing this show, doing all his audio wizardry. Thank you, sir. Oscar Mike, our awesome merch partners, everything made in the USA by veterans. Check out all the new designs at angryamericans.us now. Want to give a birthday shout out to my best friend, Todd Sutler in Brooklyn. He's an educator, amazing person, and his birthday was January 2nd, so I want to send thanks to him. Also, since it is my birthday, I want to send a thanks to my mom and to my dad for being amazing, for being supportive, and for being incredible grandparents, but my birthday should be more a celebration of you than it is a celebration of me. Speaking of celebrating, it's time for Thank a Listener. Every week, I thank a few angry Americans for listening. I'll make you famous. And you can still call in. We'll take your calls. We'll play them in the future, and I'll make you famous. If you go to 833-33-ANGRY, that's 833-33-ANGRY. Call, leave me a voicemail. Tell me what's got you angry. Tell me what's got you happy. Tell me about your first car, and maybe we'll use it on a future show. Call and get your chance to sound off. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. And I just want to send one shout out to an angry American who's been super supportive of this show, sending a big thank you to Tripper Vincent from Jupiter, Florida. He tweets it at the Waterman blog, at the Waterman blog. He served in the U.S. Army and in the Coast Guard. And this dude is really cool. He's a professional mariner with over 5,000 days at sea. He's also a maritime consultant. Uh, And he tweeted at me. Merry Christmas, Paul. Keep up the good work. My wife made an Angry Americans bag for me for Christmas. She is absolutely awesome. And he tweeted this. And you guys are going to love this. She actually put together an Angry Americans bag of goodies like the ones that I give to our guests. So he got a goodie bag with two pieces of Angry Americans merch from Oscar Mike. She got him a bottle of Jack Daniels rye, which is fantastic. And peeps, three colors, yellow, pink, and blue. He got all of them. So his wife is absolutely amazing. And Tripper, you're absolutely amazing. So appreciate you very much. And we also checked out your website, which is watermenmarine.com. This is pretty cool. He has professional marine services, which I didn't even know what that was, yacht management, vessel project management, captain and training services, maritime consulting. So over 25 years of maritime experience, he's working on shipyards and working with vessel owners. Really, really cool stuff. And we talked about Rossi and the good life. Trippers living the good life indeed. So thank you to you and thank you to everybody else for listening. Please keep that feedback coming. And until then, use the hashtag Angry Americans and sound off. I am grateful to all of you as we power into 2020 and try to add more light than heat. I want to thank my family, especially my wife and my two boys. We had an amazing holiday. They are always incredible. And especially the little guy had his nine-month checkup. He had to get a shot this week. And we're continuing to try to sleep train. So I just want to thank all of them for enduring sleep training. If you've ever tried to sleep train a kid, you understand where I'm coming from. But I want to thank the little guy. 
who is going through that himself right now, and it's hard. But I love you, man. I love my family. Thank you so much for all your support. And, of course, I'm thankful to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Give me a present for my birthday and continue to tell your friends to check this podcast out. If you're on an Apple device, leave the show a quick review. It only takes a minute. And if for some reason you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe right now. Go ahead and do it. And you can have this pod hot and fresh and waiting for you every Thursday morning, just in time for your Thursday commute. And go back and check out all our archives. Uh, You can binge them. You can share them. And keep your feedback coming on social media. Follow us on Facebook and on Instagram and also on YouTube. All our videos are up on YouTube. You'll have a video of Rossi that you can check out as well. And you can sign up for our newsletter. We've got a lot more events coming up all across the country in 2020. Uh, We're going to do New York. We're going to do San Diego and L.A. We just came back from Miami. And we're going to do places around the country. So stay tuned. Subscribe for free and share. And we'll keep this moving, growing week by week. We're going to end 2019 strong. And we're going to power into 2020. Welcome to the good life. It's okay to be angry, but know you're not alone. We're all a little angry, and that's because we're paying attention. And together, we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. And even when the stress is high, try to find the good life however you can. And of course, stay vigilant, America. America.